Greetings to you all, and welcome to Missouri Humanities Roots and Routes podcast. I'm Caitlin Yeager. For those who may not know, the Roots and Routes podcast features scholars, authors, and enthusiasts alike to explore what has influenced the movement of people into, out of, and within our state, and takes a glance at how both chosen and forced migrations and changes in transportation throughout our state's history have helped shape Missouri. I'm delighted to present my conversation with Dr. Jean Chavez. Jean is known for documenting the life experiences of Mexican and other immigrants in the Midwest. He's led an oral history collecting initiative for the Kansas City Museum and contributed to the Kansas City Urban Public Library's Digital Encyclopedia Project to create a Kansas City Oral Histories web portal. He also collaborated with the Smithsonian National Museum of American History on play ball in the Barrios and the Big Leagues, a bilingual journey into the heart of American baseball. He was a co-author of Mexican American Baseball in Kansas City and also sits on the speakers bureaus for both Missouri Humanities and Humanities Kansas. In this episode, we discuss the impact of Hispanic peoples putting down roots in Missouri as well as Gene's work preserving Hispanic histories and his dedication to lifting up Hispanic voices, bringing awareness to these often untold or underrepresented stories in Missouri and beyond. Dr. Jean Chavez, welcome to the Roots and Routes podcast, and thank you for being willing to participate and share with Missouri Humanities and our listeners. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So if you'd be willing, I'd love to start by inviting you to share some of your own family's heritage. Where is your family from, uh, and what is their, uh, we'll call it their Roots and Routes journey to America, and then your own to Missouri? Well, um, my mother's side of the family uh, came during the 1700s, about the middle of the 1700s, uh, when Spain dominated throughout uh, the southwest of, of the United States. Uh, they came from uh, Spain, the western side of Spain, uh, as settlers um, and settled in um, New Mexico back then during the... Uh, period of colonialization of New Mexico. Uh, it was part of New Spain. And so they settled eventually in a valley just north of Las Vegas, New Mexico, called uh, the Mora Valley. It's where the Mora River and the Sepio River uh, run through a, a beautiful uh, grassland uh, area where there was a lot of cattle raising and farming in that valley, and um, they remained there for probably ne nearly a century uh, wow. be before they moved to other parts of New Mexico. Uh, that was on the, my mother's side of the family. On my father's side of the family, I uh, had uh, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, uh, her father uh, was from Saltillo, Mexico, uh, near... Um, Monterrey, the city of Monterrey, the second largest city in Mexico. But uh, the story is told that he came with his family in a covered wagon uh, into New Mexico and then uh, settled eventually around Trinidad and Pueblo, Colorado. So uh, my dad's roots um, came on his mother's side of the family from there. And then the Chavises, uh, which was my father's dad's last name, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather was a Chavez, Crescencio Chavez, and uh, his people probably came from Spain, settled in southern Colorado, where there was large settlements of uh, Hispanics who came from Spain and Mexico. But of course, it was all new Spain at that time when they were coming up. Right. So were you raised in New Mexico? No, my parents... Uh, were raised uh, raised our um, my siblings and myself in Colorado, and uh, in Denver specifically, um, 
and we had, um, for the most part, uh, an upbringing in Denver, but both of our grandmothers moved to Los Angeles after their husbands died, and uh, we also lived in Los Angeles in different, at different times. But we always took frequent trips to New Mexico and southern Colorado to visit relatives and sometimes would stay months at a time in the summertime when school was out. So in a sense, I had, uh, as a child, a lot of New Mexico experience. Sure. And then what brought you to Missouri then? Well, I first came uh, to Missouri uh, in 1961. I went to a small Bible uh, uh, school, parochial school, in Kirksville, Missouri. Oh, I'm very familiar. <laughs> Which, um, uh, of course, is where uh, Missouri um, Truman State University is today. Uh, I eventually went to uh, Northeast Missouri State University before it became Truman University. And, uh, and that was after I married, because after I went to Kirksville, I came to Overland Park uh, to Kansas Christian College and finished um, a degree in sociology and theology there before I went up to Northeast Missouri State University, as it was called back then, uh, after I had married and my wife and I went up there and uh, we, we both did teaching degrees. I did mine in secondary education um, with a, a major in Spanish language and literature, and my wife did hers in elementary. Uh, and, I, and I got certification for teaching as well, so as a secondary uh, teacher of Spanish uh, language and literature. Wow. So you have very deep roots here in America. You've got a very fascinating family history. Um, how do you feel your personal and family history inspired the work you do in the research? Well, it really um, comes from the storytelling that I heard from my grandparents, my parents. Uh, they always had stories to tell, and I was fortunate in that we not uh, when I as a kid growing up I didn't have many distractions, uh, <laughs> other than uh, uh, you know playing outside until dark and then when it got dark, uh, we would come in and have supper. My mom my mom uh, made tortillas every day of the world as a kid growing up, uh, and uh, you know we had New Mexico style Mexican food at home, uh, e even though we were growing uh, you know uh, growing up in Denver. Uh, there were a significant number of Hispanic people there. We called ourselves Hispanos in Spanish um, because, uh, you know, my mother had a strong sense of her Spanish roots. And uh, even though my dad's, part of my dad's family came from Mexico, it was still part of New Spain at the time. So we thought of ourselves as Hispanos. Um, and there are many other terms that are used for the Latin uh, uh, people of uh, Hispanic and Portuguese roots, you know, like la Latino and so forth. But um, my mother always insisted that we think of ourselves as Hispanos. Um, and, and during the Chicano movement of the, of the 60s and 70s, my brothers and I all became part of the movement. And uh, so we, at that time, were calling ourselves Chicanos, much to the dismay of my mother. But, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anyway, uh, going back to your, your question, um, the uh, people that um, I grew up around, um, you know, definitely um, had that sense of being Hispanic and wanting to maintain our um, historical roots. And so uh, when I heard the stories of my parents, uh, I, I just really became interested in history, and I would often ask questions, well, you know, when did this happen, and who were your uh, actual ancestors, uh, where did they come from, and, and those kinds of things. So um, it piqued my interest, uh, the, the stories that they would tell, and 
we'd often sit around um, a little space heater that we had in our home. Uh, that was the only source of heat. And we were living in Denver, and, and the winters would be cold. So, and we didn't have television, so we didn't have that distraction. No, no video games or anything like that. No mm-hmm. cell phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we would tell, my mother and dad would tell stories about New Mexico. And, and they were always, or we'd say, that can't be true. And they'd say, yes, it is true. You know, when they talk about, especially about the spooky stories, because they love to tell those about the brujos and the brujas, the witches <laughs> that existed down there. Sure. And... Uh, so um, we'd always uh, hear those stories and, and ask questions. And then when we'd go to New Mexico, uh, we'd see some of the things that they would tell in their stories uh, at my grandmother's house. In By this time, my grandparents had moved to Raton, New Mexico, um, because my grandfather, Ortiz, worked in the Santa Fe coal mines, Santa Fe Railroad coal mines, in uh, northern New Mexico, around Raton, New Mexico, all the way up to Trinidad, Colorado, there were deposits of coal. Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandfather and all of his sons worked in the coal mines. Uh, all of my uncles went to World War II, but before they worked, they uh, went to World War II, they worked in the coal mines, and then they came back, and most of them continued working in the coal mines. Um, and unfortunately, many of them got black lung because back then they didn't take and have the equipment. So, um, yeah, it, it was um, a rich upbringing for me, uh, hearing those stories and piquing my interest to tell the history of our people. And uh, when I moved to Kansas City uh, the second time, I, my wife and I, after we finished our degrees, I went back to the Bible College and taught for uh, a number of years, and she taught in Olathe Public Schools. And then we went back to Denver and um, eventually went to Arizona State University in 1976. And she got her master's degree in specialist in, a re- in reading as a reading specialist. And I did my <clears throat> master's in um, secondary counseling and then I did my doctorate in social and cultural foundations of education at uh, Arizona State. <clears throat> and so we finished up by uh, 1980 uh, uh, with our actual coursework. And then I finished my dissertation in uh, 1985. So your main objective as I've kind of gathered from my research on you is, you know, now that you're in Kansas city and doing this work is to really preserve the stories of, you know, Hispanic peoples, Hispanic immigration stories, um, and just the, the, the imprint that Hispanic people and culture have had on Missouri and beyond. Um, but to kind of set the stage, you know, and this is a very broad question, but just as a jumping off point, let's look at the context of Missouri as a destination for immigrants. Um, when you look at, you know, in, in your family, you know, people coming from, from Spain, from Mexico, and other Hispanic immigrants to Missouri, um, what periods of history do we start to see these waves of movement? Yeah, if you talk about large waves, of course, it, it's uh, relatively recently but um, I, I would like to mention, uh, you know, some of the early um, individuals who, who came, uh, you know, to this part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think specifically of the Coronado Expedition of 1540 that almost reached uh, Missouri, but not quite. Mm-hmm. They reached the uh, Arkansas River and, and followed that, you know, all the way to Wichita. But they definitely were in the in the general territory, and and of course um, uh, DeSoto, his expedition almost brought him uh, to the Mississippi River. He was he was very close, about the same time that Coronado was ex- exploring. So, uh, and, and and all along the way, of course, they claimed the territory they passed through uh, for the 
kings of Spain, you know, and mm -hmm. claimed it Span as Spanish territory. Um, and then, um, you know, during the period of the 1700s, uh, there were uh, individuals uh, who came uh, to Missouri, uh, like Manuel Lisa, for example, uh, who was uh, born in Spanish Louisiana. Well, he was actually born in somewhere in the Caribbean. It's kind of a controversy as to where he was. His name was Manuel de Lisa, but he went eventually by Manuel Lisa, and in history books record him as Manuel Lisa. But uh, <clears throat> he, uh, he came to St. Louis uh, when uh, Spain controlled um, what, it, what later became uh, the Louisiana Purchase. But, mm -hmm. but when um, Lisa came up uh, the Mississippi River from um, New Orleans, where he was educated uh, as a young man, he established uh, himself in St. Louis, Missouri. And, uh, you know, he's one of the earliest uh, Hispanics who came here. When the Louisiana Purchase took place in 1803, uh, he was already established in business in St. Louis, and he was one of the outfitters for the Lewis and Clark Corps of Discovery expedition. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And uh, later he became a partner with uh, William Clark of the expedition, captain. He, he never made a rank an, uh, of uh, captain, even though he was captain. Uh, everybody on the expedition, Corps of Discovery expedition, called him captain. Mm -hmm. And, and um, uh, Mer Meriwether Lewis was a, a captain in, in the uh, U.S. Uh, military, but... Um, Clark never achieved anything beyond um, lieutenant. But anyway, going back to, to uh, Lisa, uh, not only did he help supply the uh, expedition of Lewis and Clark, he became good friends uh, with uh, Lewis, uh, William Clark, and um, he... Um, actually entered into the fur trading business before Clark came back from the expedition, or he was one of the early uh, uh, explorers on the Missouri River uh, all the way into Montana, <clears throat> mm. and uh, came back and uh, then took uh, led a, a large expedition of fur trappers out of St. Louis uh, up the Missouri River uh, up to uh, Yellowstone uh, River in Montana and uh, began trade. He was later named uh, when the United States uh, took over that the Louisiana Purchase. He was named as an Indian agent for the United States and by virtue of his uh, uh, living arrangements, living in St. Louis, St. Louis became part of the Louisiana Purchase. But under, under Spain for uh, over 49 years, uh, the Louisiana Purchase was all part of New Spain. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, he, uh, he automatically became an American citizen. So he had dual citizenship, both as a Spaniard and um, as a, um, <clears throat> you know, American now living in St. Louis. Uh, he was also one of the first founders of uh, the uh, Louis, Bank of St. Louis and... Uh, became a commissioner uh, not only for uh, under uh, uh, William uh, Clarks, uh, who was the commissioner for Indian Affairs, he, uh, he became an Indian agent under Clark. Uh, so <clears throat> he, uh, he made more trips probably than anyone else in the early mm -hmm. days up and down the uh, Missouri River, um, establishing uh, several forts which really were trading posts along the Missouri River, but they were fortified in case of uh, attacks from indigenous people. Mm -hmm. So he's one. Uh, you know, I think of other Hispanics, like um, many of the uh, well-to-do people of Nuevo, the Kingdom of New Mexico, which later became a territory of the United States after James Polk launched a war against Mexico and took over that territory through, uh, in 1848, uh, 
by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And, uh, but uh, the Hispanic elite had long been sending their children to St. Louis University, which was oh. a Jesuit university, uh -huh. and uh, their daughters to uh, Loretto uh, University. Uh, and both of those, uh, of course, Loretto today is Webster University in West, Webster Grove uh, near, uh, well, it is in St. Louis now. Um, so um, the Spanish elite were sending their children <clears throat> and... Uh, there was uh, a man by the name of uh, Miguel Antonio Otero. He attended St. Louis University and learned English uh, as one of his first subjects. And then uh, he became, uh, I think he majored in English and then became uh, a businessman and became one of the principal uh, individuals on the Santa Fe Trail after 1821 when the Santa Fe Trail opened up, uh, as did many other Hispanic elite. Uh, the Spanish were actually the principal traders on the Santa Fe Trail. They're the ones that had the capital and the resources to buy the goods and then from Santa Fe distribute them south to Mexico City on the Camino Real uh, and west on the various Camino Reales that existed throughout the Spanish Empire for 300 years that had been developed and built in uh, what is today uh, Mexico and, and other parts of Latin America. So we, we see kind of during this point more individual movement, you know, singular people or maybe families moving for a specific purpose. And, um, you know, if we think you mentioned the war with Mexico during Polk's administration and kind of the, um, in the 1840s. And I think at that point in the United States, you know, immigration, especially from places like Western Europe was starting to ramp up. We think of German immigrants, Irish immigrants, um, you know, the United States is at war with Mexico. Do we see any movement of Mexican people during this wartime to try and escape that or, um, you know, any other bigger movements? Or is this still during the 19th century while a lot of the rest of the world is is moving into the United States, what are we seeing from Hispanic countries? <clears throat> yes, that, that's, that's a great question. Uh, well, you know, there were different periods. During the Santa Fe Trail, there, weren't, there really wasn't any mass immigration because Hispanos uh, of New Mexico... Uh, and of Mexico, because a lot of them, you know, uh, traverse the trail, also coming down from, from Chihuahua and Durango and other places to trade with the United States. Um, and uh, one of the things that the Spanish uh, Empire had was the Spanish doubloon and other um, uh, uh, gold and silver-based uh, currency, which the United States lacked uh, tremendously. And it wasn't until you know, the California gold rush that uh, we, we, we changed our system from a paper a note, banknote system to a hard currency base. Mm. Uh, but when, uh, during the Santa Fe Trail, there were uh, various families that uh, did come, but they actually preferred, you know, living uh, in New Mexico or in Mexico uh, but there were some who, who may have settled here, but not many, uh, and, and history hasn't really recorded and given us record of them. Uh, the largest influx of uh, Hispanic people of Mexican nationality, uh, that is, they were now, uh, after 1821, the same year that Missouri became a state, Mexico became a nation, a free nation, uh, and at that time, uh, the river between uh, the United States and Mexico was the Arkansas River, what, mm. they, what they call in Kansas the Arkansas River. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it ran from, you know, the Rocky Mountains uh, near Canyon City, Colorado, all the way through uh, Kansas uh, 
part of uh, a little part of Oklahoma and on into Arkansas. And, and that was the Mexican-U.S. border in 1821 when Missouri became a state. So much closer to Missouri, obviously, you know, and put it in context. Yeah. Mexico was much closer to Missouri then than obviously it is now. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, well, it, was, it wasn't until 1848 when Mexico signed a treaty with the United States called the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo mm-hmm. uh, and named after uh, a, a city in, in Mexico, uh, named after the liberator of Mexico, uh, Father Hidalgo. Uh, um, And in 1848, Mexico uh, ceded uh, all of that territory uh, up to to the Rio Grande River to the United States. So then that became the border between Mexico and the United States. Uh, uh, It was the Rio Grande River that ran through New Mexico. New Mexico didn't really become a state of the United States uh, until 1912. So it was the last uh, state, continental state, to become a part of the United States. Hmm. Um, During its territorial days, um, you know, many Hispanics did continue coming to St. Louis uh, to go to school. The, The Spanish elite continued sending their children to St. Louis to... St. Louis University, the Jesuit School, and to uh, Loretto um, uh, in Webster Grove, there, the women's school. And um, the, uh, uh, so that, that was probably the largest influx during that period, uh, flux mm-hmm. during that period. Then later uh, in the Mexican Revolution, 1910 to 1921, um, that's when the largest influx of Mexican people came north. Over a million people left Mexico during that period of time, fleeing the Mexican Revolution. Uh, That's where the peasantry was basically trying to gain land rights and uh, equal status with uh, the landed aristocracy. Uh, And they came, uh, and one of the factors was the World War I, Mm-hmm. Uh, with many of the men gone from the United States, so there was a huge labor shortage. Sure. And uh, it was uh, the United States was very welcome, welcoming to those fleeing uh, Mexican people who who were leaving uh, Mexico because of the Mexican Revolution. And uh, St. Louis actually became a headquarters for. Uh, uh, the uh, ma- many of the Mexican uh, elite who wanted uh, to install a liberal form of government. They were called the liberals, Los Liberales, and uh, they had a headquarters in St. Louis as they organized a more democratic government for, for Mexico uh, that would be led by Benito Juarez. Mm. Um, and then later other... Um, uh, liberals who uh, took, um, you know, leadership in Mexico after the revolution. So bigger waves happening in, in more the, the first quarter of the uh, 20th century, you're saying? Yes, right. And uh, there were also um, large influxes um, wherever there was work opportunities. Kansas City was one of the cities that... Uh, many Mexicans came to during that period uh, because, uh, again, the labor shortage in the railroad industry. You know, Kansas City has long been connected directly with Mexico, not only because of the Santa Fe Trail, but then the subsequent railroad um, systems that Mm -hmm. uh, left Kansas City. So Kansas City became a rail hub uh, for north-south movement of goods. and uh, even is to this day, you know, um, between uh, Canada, uh, the United States, and Mexico, there, there's a line that runs uh, straight from uh, the port of uh, 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 Lázaro Cárdenas uh, port all the way up to Canada through Kansas City. Uh, so um, that, you know, many, many, many... People came to take advantage of the cattle industry, the stockyards, um, 
you know, vaqueros were uh, rounding up cattle that were driven up the various trails, uh, first starting in Sedalia. Uh, Sedalia, Missouri was uh, one of the railheads that hooked up eventually with the, with the uh, Union Pacific and other rail lines, the Katy Line and others. So when you go to Sedalia, Missouri, you'll see uh, a, a train with the cattle cars uh, that would were rounded up in northern Mexico and, and, uh, and in central Texas and driven north to American markets, especially after the Civil War. Um, so, you know, there were smatterings of uh, Hispanos uh, during that earlier period, but uh, a larger number came during the Mexican Revolution and uh, stayed because um, the industries that they entered into, including the garment-making industry, the uh, ho uh, hotels, you know, hospitality industries, all of those were looking for workers, and Mexican workers filled the bill for them, uh -huh. along with other immigrants. Like you mentioned, um, it was a time, you know, the um, late 1800s was a time when many immigrants, especially from Southern Europe, uh, were coming, and Germans were coming to Missouri as well. Uh, because of World War I, uh, uh, and even before that, and of course the Irish and others. Uh, taking those uh, labor-intensive jobs along with the Mexicans and, and the black people as uh, the, the great uh, black migration was taking place. Right, yeah, that is around this time too. So all, all of that was happening to fuel the industries that are yeah. in Missouri, yeah. And it's, you know, the first podcast episode that we recorded as part of the Roots and Routes series was with Dr. Ness Sandoval at... St. Louis University, and he's a demographer. And something that we talked about was the fact that, um, you know, particularly during World War One and World War Two, there was such a labor shortage because most able-bodied men were, um, you know, off at war. And granted, lots of women, you know, entered the workforce, but it still wasn't enough. And you know, oftentimes these these immigrants were very much welcome and needed because they needed to fill that shortage. But I do wonder. You know, we we hear about, you know, for example, um, the last podcast we did with Patrick Murphy talks about the Irish in St. Louis and, you know, the the somewhat now cliche, but still very, very true phrase of no Irish need apply. Um, you know, Irish being labeled as as lazy drunks, you know, and then you get into World War One, World War Two, German people of German descent were not trustworthy because of, you know, Nazism and, and other bad blood with Germany. So we have many examples of, you know, these these encounters with people in Missouri and beyond and immigrants or first, second generation peoples. Thinking about Hispanics, you know, we're talking about you made bigger waves in the early 1900s, even those kind of trickling in during the, the, the 19th century. What did they encounter uh, as they tried to put down roots in places like Kansas City or St. Louis or anywhere in between? Well, they certainly dis uh, experienced uh, segregation and discrimination. Um, there were also signs uh, that said... Uh, no Mexicans or dogs are allowed here. So they often, uh, e even during the Santa Fe Trail days, um, you know, uh, when Mexicans were coming up um, with the Spanish uh, or Hispano traders uh, from uh, along, uh, coming north on, along the trail, uh, you know, they were often characterized uh, as, uh, uh, and that's really the, uh, birth of the term greasers uh, mm. for Hispanic people because, um, you know, they, a lot of uh, the, the ones that they uh, chose to sort of uh, pick out as examples of the, of the lazy Mexican because they also had that stereotype. Sure. Uh, and and uh, were, the, were the guys who would often uh, get black with grease by, by getting under the wheels of the wagons as they rolled along and greasing those <laughs> wagon wheels that were coming up. Right. North. And so they called them greasers. 
uh, and uh, there was, uh, you know, a lot of discrimination on the part of the white population uh, towards Mexicans, and in communities where they settled, <clears throat> they were often uh, uh, segregated in schools, so there were segregated schools. White parents <clears throat> did not want their children going uh, to the same schools with Mexican kids. Uh, even the Catholic Church had segregated congregations, uh, and uh, most uh, Mexicans eventually had to start their own churches uh, or uh, worship in uh, different masses. Than, uh, in other words, there would be maybe a 10 o'clock mass for the Mexicans and then a 11 mm -hmm. o'clock mass for the white people. So, um, yeah, that that very much happened in uh, not only uh, Missouri, but surrounding states, Kansas especially. Sure, sure. Yeah. So let's dig a little bit more specifically into the work that you've done. Um, you dedicated a lot of your career to preserving stories of the Hispanic experience in Missouri then and now. Um, and you mentioned kind of one of your, your research areas or the projects you've been involved with, with the research of the Vaqueros. Um, can you reflect on some of your projects and their impact? So, like I said, you, you brought up Vaqueros. Uh, I would love if you could talk a little bit more about that because I think it's a really fascinating history, as well as, um, you know, the Santa Fe Trail. And then I'd also really like you to talk about the work you did with the Smithsonian and, and Hispanics in baseball. Well, <clears throat> starting with the, uh, the story of the vaqueros, um, you know, the cattle industry was um, a phenomenon of the Hispanic world, um, especially cowboys um, on horseback, <laughs> you know, and, and almost everything uh, about American ranching today is directly des descended from um, the cattle industry of the Hispanic world. Very uh, interesting. Christopher Columbus, on his second voyage, brought uh, longhorn cattle to the Americas, and uh, those longhorn cattle uh, proliferated over a couple of centuries of time, while well, during the 300 years that Spain dominated uh, Latin American countries. Uh, and, and those nations were under the, the Spanish Empire, um, you know, the candle industry grew. Uh, so all the way from Argentina, where you, ha you find the riding cowboy, the gauchos, uh, to the northern uh, uh, South American countries like Colombia and, and um, uh, Venezuela and so forth that have the, what are called llaneros. And then uh, in Mexico and uh, what Mexico was before the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, 1848, up to the Wichita, uh, up as far north as Wichita along the Arkansas River. Um, that was all cattle uh, grazing land for the Hispanic world. And so uh, the phenomenon of uh, caballeros or vaqueros, and there's a difference between a caballero. A caballero is a gentleman who rides horseback. And for a long period of time in uh, Spanish New World, uh, the uh, mestizos, that is the mixture between Indians and Spanish, or, mm -hmm. or the mulatos, the mixture of Spanish and black enslaved people, or the mixture between black enslaved people and Indians who were called sambos in the, in the Spanish Empire, they were prohibited from uh, riding horses, owning a horse and riding because it was for the elite, the gentlemen, los caballeros. Okay, and, okay. And so caballeros is more of a kind of a, a hobby kind of thing, a, a status symbol? Yeah, well, it was a means of transportation, but course, the Spanish developed, um, you know, horseback riding and bullfighting in the mm -hmm. Iberian Peninsula, but the phenomenon really came from Northern Africa when the Islamic world took over Spain for 750 years. And, and so the tradition of herding cattle on horseback came from Northern Africa up to 
uh, among the uh, Berbers and other Northern Africans. Uh, and then the Islamic Caliphate when it took over Spain, uh, which ended in, in 1492, January of 1492, and Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Uh, so they in, say. <laughs> in October, you know, in the, win in the fall of 1492, because Isabella and Ferdinando, who, who had married to the unite the Christian kingdoms against the Islamic world and finally won after 750 years, um, you know, they, they commissioned Columbus. And on his second voyage, he brought the cattle. And so the cattle industry started. It had been well developed in Spain and, and in Northern Africa. And that and the tradition of horses, uh, you know, and, and so the 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 gentlemen, the the caballeros, they needed somebody to work their ranchos because that was the system of settlement of uh, New Spain. Mm -hmm. They developed haciendas, which were large <clears throat> tracts of land uh, awarded to the noblemen, uh, and uh, uh, then the noblemen, of course. Uh, hired people to work uh, ranchos to to corral the uh, cattle <clears throat> and allow them to free range and and then round them up uh, during uh, you know the spring for uh, castration and uh, branding. The Spanish developed the whole idea of branding because of the free range um, uh, system that they had, where various owners allowed their cattle to to range together, but then they would round up their cattle and, <clears throat> and brand them uh, <clears throat> in the summer uh, in order to, you know, know who, what brand belonged to whom. There was actually a, what was called a mesta, which was a cattlemen's association among the Hispanics uh, to uh, identify brands and to award brands and so forth and to regulate the industry. So the whole cattle raising industry was a phenomenon of, of the Spanish uh, that later uh, developed uh, throughout uh, the American West as mm -hmm. a Western settler, you know, people who moved west from the East Coast began to see how the Hispanic people uh, operated the haciendas and, and the ranchos, which were a part of the hacienda operation. That's fascinating history. And I think what's so fascinating about it is, you know, I feel like if you were to look at pop culture, you know, what is more American pop culture or even thinking of cinematic history of, you know, these Westerns that are, you know, the hero cowboy and, you know, and it, it we, what we learn is, you know, it has roots, deep roots in Hispanic culture. And I think that, you know, it's just another testament to the melding of cultures and, you know, and sometimes that, you know, idea of, you know, taking something that, you know, is representative of one culture and, and maybe a little bit of that colonizing <laughs> attitude, you know, um, yeah. but it's fascinating, you know, the, the, the tale of, you know, the, the heroic cowboy in the West is, is. You a know. Hispanic story, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's roots. it's yeah. so fascinating. Well, I mean, and just look at the language of ranching. I mean, uh, corral mm -hmm. is a direct cognate of the Spanish language. The the corral for um, which is corral, you know, in English. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the corral was really was the roundup, the spring roundup of mm -hmm. young calves in order to brand them and to castrate the bulls, uh, except those that they wanted to use for breeding. So that whole industry, the, the lasso really, uh, you know, come, it comes from uh, la reyeta, the Spanish word for rope, that the vaqueros made their own ropes out of rawhide. Uh, and and uh, so even, you know, all of the equipment, uh, the saddle with the large horn, uh, that, that was all Spanish innovations um, for ranching uh, that became a part. The singing cowboy uh, really started with, uh, with a uh, uh, corridos, the running stories that the Mexican vaqueros used to uh, entertain themselves as they sat around, or also to soothe the cattle. 
they would often sing these uh, running stories, the corrido, um, and, and and that's where Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, the singing cowboys, mm-hmm. got their idea of sitting around a campfire singing. Uh, so because uh, when you look at Mexican cinema, you know they also portrayed. I grew up with Mexican cinema going on <laughs> Sunday afternoons in Denver, and. Uh, and in New Mexico, and you always had uh, the Mexican cowboys singing uh, El Rancho Grande and other corridos that they sang. You know, and, and that it was way back in the 1930s and 40s that, that Mexican cinema was portraying the real, you know, Mexican vaquero. I love it. I, I really appreciate the 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 real backstory and the, the, the deep history of, of something that's, you know, kind of transformed into, you know, something that's almost stereotypical American. So, you know, thank you for, for telling that history and for sharing those stories. Something I'd love you to, to talk more about too, is, um, you know, the, the place of Missouri and I think specifically the Kansas city area with the Santa Fe trail, obviously the Santa Fe trail was a, a large movement of people, you know, to the West and, and Missouri played a big role in that. Um, can you talk a bit about, you know, that, that history and those stories that, that you've worked to, to, um, kind of uncover and preserve? Well, yeah, it goes back to, I think the, um, the capitalistas or the capitalists in the Hispanic world who had the, the money to buy, um, the manufactured goods and they, when they gained their independence from Spain in 1821, um, you know, under Spain's rule, <clears throat> they did not want <clears throat> uh, their empire to trade. Uh, they didn't want people in the northern part of the empire to trade with the United States. So any trade goods that came into what is today New Mexico which then, again, with the border at the, at the Arkansas River, was part of New Spain all the way over to Sacramento, California. Um, and, and you think about the Southwest. I mean, all of the cities, major cities, were at one time missions of, um, of the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, and, right. and when you established a mission, you always sent a presidio, uh, that is a... Um, a a garrison of, of uh, soldiers, and they would set up a presidio to protect then the, the Hispanic settlers, and and so um, you know all of this was established. So when you talk about Saint Augustine over in Florida, or Sacramento, in that was all named after uh, reli- Spanish religious names. Um, Los Angeles, for example, is was the, called by the Spanish. It was a mission to begin with, uh, called um, La Ciudad de Nuestra Señora de Los Ángeles, Our Lady of the Angels. Um, So, uh, you know, Sacramento, San Diego, uh, San Antonio, uh, all of those were uh, Spanish settlements uh, established by the church and and by uh, the government of New Spain. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, when... uh, when the Santa Fe Trail started, you had people who had, uh, who were hacenderos, that is, they owned the haciendas. An hacienda is, comes from a Spanish word, it means to make or to do, to hacer, to make or to do. And, <clears throat> and, and so what they did is they were self-sufficient entities where, you know, they made their own candles, they made their own uh, cloth out of wool that they uh, developed in uh, around the hacienda they grew their own vegetables their own cotton you know their own, everything it was self-sustaining and um, cattle were, were a very much part of that the cattle were usually on on uh, part of the hacienda land grants um, and that was the rancho and so the rancho life uh, you know that ranches and uh, you know so the <clears throat> that uh, that whole system uh, kind of uh, precluded um, the bringing in of manufactured goods unless they came through the Port of Veracruz through the Spanish. They wanted the monopoly on trade. 
And so when Mexico gained its independence in 1821, they wanted to continue receiving manufactured goods that used to come from England to Puerto Veracruz, now coming in through uh, you know, American ports, Boston and, and New York, uh, to be loaded on riverboats and shipped west to, uh, on the Ohio River and the Mississippi River on the Missouri River. Through, uh, they, they needed a land route, and the most direct way was from Kansas City uh, down to uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Then it could be distributed throughout the Spanish Empire, former Spanish Empire. Um, and, and so that's really how the Santa Fe Trail developed. And by the end of the <clears throat> Santa Fe Trail, the majority of people were um, you know, Hispanic traders because they are the ones that had the capital to buy the goods. So, you know, the United States history is, uh, especially Western history and Western heritage, is very closely connected to the Hispanic world. So what kind of impact does something like the Santa Fe Trail have on, on Kansas City and Western Missouri? You know, what, how did that alter the landscape at the time? Or, or do we still see you know, an impact into the 20th and 21st century of having something like that, such a big part of, of history, of, of movement of, of people and goods uh, in Western Missouri? Well, you know, there, there's a, just that natural conduit of, uh, of the Santa Fe Trail. <clears throat> and it was really before it was, um, you know, used by Americans, the uh, native people from the plains would use that same trail uh, to go to um, New Mexico to, to trade with the Pueblo Indians. Uh, so, you know, it's been long been a trail uh, in various uh, uh, eras, first by the indigenous people, then by the Spanish, because the Spanish uh, and the French were using that trail long before the Santa Fe Trail, as, as we know it with, uh, you know... Um, um, our our side of the story is, okay. is is that you know Americans forged that trail. No, it was there for hundreds of years, used okay. used by first the indigenous people, then the French and Spanish. They traveled back and forth. Uh, the French, of course, um, you know, were um, laid claim to a large portion of the land that became Louisiana Purchase. It reverted back to Spain. Uh, for 49 years, and that's when Manuel Lisa came up, uh, and and uh, you know, so so again, we're sort of uh, St. Louis and and Kansas City are the really truly were the great gateways to the West, and also the receiving points of immigrants coming uh, from the South, and um, during uh, the the uh, Mexican Revolution when those families came up fleeing Mexico, uh, you know, they settled throughout uh, Missouri and Kansas, wherever opportunities, and traveled up even in, uh, to Chicago because there were, uh, you know, labor-intensive jobs available in those cities. <clears throat> and then, of course, there's always the migrant workers who worked the uh, various crops uh, who would come up to find employment. Um, I know during the period of uh, of the uh, sugar beet era, when when uh, the United States produced a lot of its own sugar through sugar beets, okay. uh, my own family on my dad's side of the family worked the sugar beets in a crescent from Pueblo, Colorado, all the way over to Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, and there wow. were, there were uh, migrants, you know, from Mexico who came and worked the sugar beet crops because Great Western Sugar had plants all along that crescent. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so, you know, uh, going to another project that I did uh, that you asked about was the Mexican-American baseball and, yes, yes. and, and fast-pitch softball. You know, as those migrants during the Mexican Revolution came up, they settled in towns all along the railroad lines 
And because the railroad wanted year-long workers, they didn't want migrant workers to just come in and, and a growing season or whatever. They needed people to work in the railroads, in the meatpacking and others year-round. And so they, uh, railroad companies, meatpacking companies and so forth, started establishing uh, colonias or neighborhoods uh, for these people and encouraged them to bring their families. So as they came and settled, in places like uh, uh, oh, Wichita, Kansas, Newton, Kansas, Topeka, Kansas, Kansas City, Kansas, say with the railroads, uh, they had a love of baseball that they learned from Americans during the uh, Polk's War in Mexico. The soldiers had begun to play uh, rounders or what they call, later became called uh, baseball. So this game, the Mexicans picked up during that period uh, when Americans were stationed down in Mexico during the Mexican War. And uh, they, they brought that love of uh, the game with them and they formed uh, their own leagues because they had to play in segregated leagues. Mm -hmm. And that was the project that I uh, did, uh, one of the exhibits that I did in conjunction with... Uh, the uh, National Museum of, of the, uh, excuse me, the uh, uh, National Museum of American History, the Smithsonian Institution, uh, did a uh, collecting initiative in 2016. And I had been uh, developing oral histories and uh, research around that. And, and so I did a, an exhibit in 2016 here at the Kansas City Museum. And the uh, Smithsonian did a collecting because they had very little to document Mexican-American baseball and fast-pitch softball. And, and so we, uh, myself and uh, along with others of Kansas City who had been playing uh, baseball since their ancestors came here from Mexico during the Mexican uh -huh. Revolution, uh, you know, with, with their organized teams and their leagues and so forth. We did an exhibit and then the Smithsonian picked that up from uh, various other places as well where Mexicans settled. And uh, we did an exhibit at the Kansas uh, at the National Museum of American History called Playball in the Barrios in the Big Leagues. So that was another project that documented more recent movement of people to our area. I love how dynamic this this history is, and and the fact that you can really connect. You know, we talk about three seemingly very different topics: the Vaqueros, the Santa Fe Trail and baseball, but they are all like, you just did a wonderful job and a very fascinating job of connecting them all. And I think that's, that's fascinating. And, and it just shows the, you know, how rich, you know, these stories are, these, these histories are, and also how interwoven they've become with, with not just Missouri and Missouri communities, but, but, you know, the United States as a whole, um, it must be fascinating research. It is, yeah, and, and you learn something every day, you know, and when, uh, uh, you know, people contact me, you know, so especially some of the, the uh, Mexican people of this area, they say, you know, we used to live down on uh, uh, the, the West Bottoms here in Kansas, in Kansas City, and my folks worked for the packing house and so forth, but, you know, we used to have a little ball field down there, and mm -hmm. uh, the... Uh, uh, the monarchs used to come over and practice in that little field, and they would often uh, 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 play against some of our Mexican teams. Yeah. And uh, they say, well, you know, one time um, my uh, relative, and they would name him, uh, got a hit off of Satchel Page, and that was the only time that anybody <laughs> had ever gotten a hit off of Satchel Page. Oh my gosh! You know, so it, it is connected, you know, with mm -hmm. the the other, um, you know, and and I, I remember talking to, um, um, you know, the the manager um, of of the Monarchs uh, way back when, um, and Buck O'Neill, you know, John Buck O'Neill. I was visiting with John Buck O'Neill when I was doing some of this research, and he said, you know, he said when we played in the Mexican leagues, because he played, he was from the South, but he played in Kansas City's Monarchs as well. He said, we'd always play winter ball in Mexico, 
because we could go down there. You know, the ball players weren't paid much back then. They only got, you know, a small salary, not enough to support a family if they had a family. And uh, and uh, it was seasonal uh, up here. And but they say we a lot of our players would often go to Mexico, and he he himself went several years to what was called winter ball. You know, mm-hmm. Mexico started its uh, baseball professional teams back in the 1920s. And, uh, you know, they still have professional teams, just like we do in the United States, like the MLB here. Mm-hmm. And he said when we'd go down there and play, he said we ate in the finest restaurants. We, <laughs> we, we were housed in the finest hotels. We were treated like royalty, and then we'd come back to play in the United States, and we had to sleep in the bus a lot of times. We had oh, to wow. go to a side door in the, in the restaurant and, and, and get our lunch, or we had to fix sandwiches along the way or stop at places where we knew they would feed us. Uh, you know, and, and he was just comparing the difference between playing winter ball in Mexico and playing in the United States in those early days. Mm-hmm. So you've um, you've been long admired and respected in in not just Kansas City in Missouri and, and beyond for really being an advocate for Hispanic communities and and stories. So, in your mind, you know what does it mean to be an advocate for these people in these stories, and why is it important? to not just tell the stories of past people and places, but also people who are here in stories that are continuing to unfold, you know, coming from the perspective of somebody that really dedicates their, their career to just that. Well, you know, what, what is so thrilling to me is to have people come into the Kansas City Museum, where, where I serve as historian in residence, uh, and say, wow, you, you have us represented here. That, that person in that picture was my Theo, my uncle, or my great uncle, or my grandfather, who played in um, you know, the Mexican leagues. Or to have them come to the Smithsonian, where we did the play ball in the Barrios and big leagues, and Kansas City was represented there, along with other uh, cities where Mexicans had their leagues. And they would say, you know, we went to the National Museum of American History. I couldn't believe that I was seeing a uniform that my dad used to wear uh, when he played ball in the Mexican leagues. Uh, and, And so that's very gratifying to me to have people see uh, their stories being told in museums that in the past, you know, had been uh, mostly telling uh, maybe indigenous uh, stories or, and, and mostly white people's stories. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Everyone ha- deserves to have their story told. But um, the fact that many of the Hispanic stories have been undertold based on uh, stereotypes uh, that uh, people have about Hispanics, and um, you know, as a result, you know, segregation, discrimination, all of the isms, racism, and so forth, uh-huh. evolve out of those stereotypes. And uh, it's it's wonderful for me to be able to break those stereotypes and help people see the contribution that all Americans have made, including Hispanics. So as you said, you are the historian in residence for the Kansas City Museum, which has just moved into a beautiful new space in Kansas City. And and actually, you know, Missouri Humanities uh, Kansas City office is on the grounds of the Kansas City Museum. So they're lucky that they get to have a, a view of it every day. But uh, what's on the horizon for the museum and for your work with it? Well, you know, right now we're in the process uh, due to uh, wonderful grants and so forth that we've gotten to put in interactives uh, into the exhibits that we have, the, the uh, permanent exhibits. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have some, especially on the second floor, some wonderful galleries 
uh, that tell the history of Kansas City, but we tell it from the perspective of the individuals, uh, you know, who, who lived that. And we try to be uh, very representative in our approach uh, to uh, being, uh, telling the, the whole story of Kansas City, not just one group of, of, of individuals' stories. And uh, so I think that uh, gives us a great sense of pride, but also a challenge uh, to tell uh, those stories. And then through those interactives, we'll be able to illustrate it. Uh, you know, you, your program on Roots and Routes uh, is a, very much an emphasis for us, too, because uh, we want people to be able to visualize in a, uh, a interactive uh, the various uh, routes and routes that people have taken uh, to get to this part of, of Missouri uh, and, uh, and throughout the state, is, for that matter. But not only uh, Missouri, but we, we think of ourselves as a regional museum. And so uh, mm -hmm. when you think of the Hispanic community in Kansas City, there, there is a, a state border, but it's, it's nothing more than... Uh, you know, uh, a, a, a name for the Mexican community. They uh, live, have lived since they're coming to this area on both sides of the state, state line. And uh, so, you know, they're one, one large neighborhood, if you will, or colonia, as we say in Spanish. Um, so they're, they're really, you know, they were, uh, in, in all things, whether it would be church or shopping or whatever, there was no state line for them. You know, it was on both sides of the state line. So, and, and that's true for many people who live in the greater Kansas City region. Uh, you know, that uh, we're, we're part and parcel, if you will, of both sides of the state line. Well, Gene, I'm so grateful to have spoken with you. Thank you for talking with Missouri Humanities and for um, shedding light on I would say an often untold history. I think you're doing wonderful work to, to make it so we can't say that anymore. But, um, you know, so I appreciate the conversation and, and all that I've learned as well. And best of luck with the continued work in Kansas City and beyond. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Dr. Chavez for joining us for this episode of our Roots and Routes podcast. If you'd like to have Gene come speak to your group, visit mohumanities.org and click Schedule a Speaker. This podcast is brought to you by Missouri Humanities. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and stay engaged by following us on social media at Mo Humanities. For more about our 2023 signature series, visit mohumanities.org movement. I'm Caitlin Yeager. We so appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn with us. Keep a lookout for more exciting content soon from Missouri Humanities.